Since you're, most of you are still standing, you can remain standing uh, for the reading of uh, God's Word. Uh, this is a selection from Esther chapter 9. It says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And one could stand, no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials and the provinces and the satraps and the governors and royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphan, and Aspatha and Paratha, and Adalia and Aradatha, and Parmashta and Arisai and Aradai and Vizatha. I practiced those names. Christian thought. <laughs> the ten son, these were the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But the Jews laid no hand on the plunder. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. And he cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the Pur. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Um, as Lim shared with you, my name is Mike. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, or cries of outrage after this sermon, then you can send them to my email, which is josh at redeemerclt.org. Um, most of my waking hours are spent in a classroom teaching 10th graders, the New Testament, and uh, I usually uh, only get 90 minutes to do that, and now I get even less, so let's get right to it. The first thing that uh, we're presented with in this passage, and really the central thing, is the reversal of fortune. Haman's decree, which goes back to chapter 3 of Esther, was to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children, and to plunder their goods. But on this day, in Mike Cosper's words, the day meant for the destruction of the Jews became a day of redemption. 
The big bad plan that Haman concocted is completely reversed by Mordecai's counter-decree. His counter-decree commanded the Jews to defend their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force that might attack them. And even though Mordecai's counter-decree allowed the Jews to plunder the goods of the Persians, the narrator tells us three times in chapter 9 that the Jews did not lay hands on the plunder. And because of the courage of Esther and the wisdom of Mordecai, the Jews were ultimately successful in defending their lives and getting relief from their enemies. Now, one thing about this reversal that might trouble some readers of Esther is that it's a very violent reversal. It's one thing to rejoice that the Jews were not destroyed. It's another thing to see that the Jews were doing unto others the thing that had been planned against them. But there are a couple of reasons for seeing that the Jewish victory over their enemies wasn't an indiscriminate slaughter. For one, the number of Persians slain by the Jews is relatively small. The number of Persians slain is actually calculated and communicated to the king on the same day as the battle. This year's election results probably won't be counted that fast. This could indicate a calculated and careful defense on the part of the Jews rather than an indiscriminate slaughter. Secondly, Haman's command to plunder the goods is deliberately resisted. The Jews did not lay hands on the plunder, which might actually allow us to make an inference about the Persian women and children, because going back to Haman's decree against the Jews, he wanted all Jews, young and old, women and children, to be killed. But in the reversal, the Persian women and children are not even mentioned, so perhaps they too, like the plunder, are left untouched. These points may not resolve any of the tensions you could feel, uh, but the focus of the reversal is not to condone the means by which it was accomplished, but to show how complete the reversal was. Each and every boomerang that Haman threw at the Jews in his plan returned back on his own head, as Esther 9.25 tells us. And this reversal in chapter 9 really begins back in chapter 7 with Haman's death. Haman is put to death with the very weapon that he had intended to use against Mordecai. Just like Haman is destroyed by his own weapon, the Persians are destroyed by their own leader's decree. The irony of it all makes that victory that much more satisfying. It's kind of like the ending of the Avengers saga, which if you haven't seen how the Avengers saga ends over the last year, you might want to cover your ears for the next minute, and you at home can do that as well. Uh, the villain, Thanos, has collected all six of the Infinity Stones, which he wants to use to wipe out half the world with just the snap of his fingers. And so the climactic moment when Thanos raises his hand to annihilate the human race, he snaps his fingers, but all we hear is just the clunky, metallic chunk of his gauntlet. And the camera pans over to Iron Man, who has secretly apprehended the Infinity Stones, and he raises his hand, snaps his fingers, and Thanos and all of his cronies are rendered to dust. The very thing that Thanos intended to use against mankind was turned on himself, and the Avengers took the very thing meant for their destruction and turned it around for their deliverance. This phenomenon of reversal is what makes the Christian gospel so breathtaking. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the final enemy 
of humanity is death. And Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Satan is the one who holds the power of death. Fun fact, the villain from the Avengers, Thanos, he gets his name from the Greek root word for death. But Hebrews 2 goes on to tell us that it was through death itself that Jesus defeated the one who has the power of death. And not only that, but Jesus plunged into death and came out the other side. He rose from the dead so that we, for whom death is inevitable, might be given a new life that is indestructible. Just like Haman made a plan to destroy the Jews, the religious leaders in Jesus' day made a plan to destroy him. Interestingly, the weapon that Haman chose for Mordecai's execution was a tall gallows. And the Hebrew word for gallows is eitz, which also means tree. Haman's plan to hang Mordecai on a tree would have been doubly shameful for a Jew because Deuteronomy 21 tells us that a hanged man is cursed by God. But in Esther, the eitz that was intended for Mordecai is used to hang its maker instead. Or I should say, eight's maker, which would be the dad joke. It's making its way around. You guys are getting it. The same image of curses and trees are imported into the New Testament to articulate the meaning of the gospel. Galatians chapter 3 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And 1 Peter chapter 2 says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. In these passages, the eights upon which Jesus hangs is not a gallows, but a cross. And it's also kind of interesting, as a side note, that Judas Iscariot, the disciple who's responsible for beginning this plot against Jesus to get him put on a cross, he actually ends up hanging himself in Matthew 27. Just like Haman's plan returns back on his own head, Jesus' death and resurrection become the means by which the Messiah would crush the head of that ancient serpent once and for all. And after the Jews reverse Haman's plan and gain victory, they celebrate with a day of feasting and gladness, sending gifts of food to one another. The feast is named Purim after the Pur or the lots that Haman used to select the day on which he would annihilate the Jews. In fact, the word pur or purim occurs seven times in chapter 9 of Esther. And the name of this Jewish feast, purim, is itself a kind of reversal. The pur, the name of the instrument that Haman uses to select the day of their destruction, now becomes the name of the day when the Jews would celebrate their deliverance from that destruction. On Purim. The Jews named the feast on which they celebrate their deliverance after the very instrument that was used to select the day of their destruction. It's sort of like how Christians sing about the cross. The cross was the instrument to put their Messiah to death, but it ended up working out for their salvation. The truth that we glean from these reversals in chapter 9 of Esther is this. What was intended for good worked out for evil. This is the same conclusion that we find at the end of a very popular Old Testament narrative, the Joseph narrative. At the end of the Joseph narrative, 
he's able to look at his brothers who sold him into slavery and tell them, what you intended for evil, God worked for good. In fact, the entire story of Joseph is hiding in the background of the entire story of Esther. Here's some examples of of some parallels between these two narratives. In the beginning of Esther, she is found more desirable than any of the other women in the king's harem. Likewise, Joseph was loved more than any of his other siblings. Esther's cousin Mordecai provides the king with some life-saving information that he happened to overhear, and that instance is recorded in the king's book and later recalled to Mordecai's advantage. Likewise, Joseph interprets dreams for the king's cupbearer while he's imprisoned with him. This comes in handy two years later when the king has a dream of his own. Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman, which leads Haman to seek revenge. Likewise, Joseph refuses to bow to the sexual advances of the king's wife, and that leads her to plot against him. Mordecai reminds Esther of the serendipity of her position with the king. Perhaps she's been brought into this position for such a time as this, that she might be able to save the Jews from harm. Likewise, Joseph acknowledges that he arrived in his serendipitous position in Egypt, not because his brothers had sold him into slavery, but because three times in Genesis 45, he says, God sent me before you to preserve your life. At the turning point of the Esther story, Esther chapter 6, the king can't sleep. And so he has someone come to him and read from the record book, which does honestly sound like a good sleep aid, if you ask me. And this reminds the king of Mordecai's life-saving information, and he ends up promoting Mordecai. Likewise, the turning point of the Joseph story revolves around the king's sleep. The king has a dream that no one can interpret, but the chief cupbearer happens to remember, oh, there was this guy, Joseph, that I was imprisoned with. He interpreted one of my dreams. Maybe he could help. And so he sends for Joseph, and this leads to his promotion. At the end of Esther, Mordecai and Esther are able to reverse Haman's evil plans to destroy the lives of all the Jews. And likewise, Joseph tells his brothers at the end of the narrative that though they meant evil against him, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive from the famine that was going on at the time. And if all of those parallels aren't enough, Esther, the name Esther, the Persian name given to Hadassah in Esther chapter 2, means hidden. And Joseph has his name changed in Genesis chapter 41 to Zapanath Panea, which means one who discovers what is hidden. So these parallels between these two stories, you've got Esther in the forefront and you've got Joseph in the background. These parallels help us to locate the divine activity in the otherwise godless narrative of Esther. The book of Esther never explicitly mentions God's activity in any of its events. The story of Joseph, on the other hand, is very upfront about God's involvement in the events of Joseph's life. So the apparent divine action in the Joseph story helps us interpret the apparent absence of any divine action in the Esther story. The fact that the Joseph story is hidden in the background of Esther helps us to determine or discover the hidden things in the narrative of Esther. 
it helps us to see that it is ultimately God who is behind these reversals. But the Joseph story helps us make sense of one other important detail of the ending to Esther. Chapter 10, which we actually didn't read, it's three verses long. And this last chapter of the book of Esther has the last two verses giving this happily ever after kind of ending where Mordecai is great and the Jews live happily ever after and they ride off into the sunset sort of thing. But chapter 10 begins with a seemingly out of place comment about how the king imposed tax on all the land. It seems unnecessary, like a a speed bump in the middle of an otherwise happy celebratory ending. But if we read Esther with the Joseph story in mind, as we, we can throughout the whole book, what we see is that this comment about imposing tax actually creates sort of a cliffhanger ending. The only place, or only places, in the Old Testament where this form of the Hebrew phrase for imposing tax appears are here in Esther chapter 1, or chapter 10, verse 1, and at the beginning of the Exodus story, which occurs right after Joseph at the end of Genesis. At this point, Joseph has died. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so this new king decides to deal harshly with the alarmingly large multitude of Jewish people in Egypt by setting or imposing taskmasters on them. It's the same phrase. So the close reader of Esther is perhaps intended to connect the Persian king's imposing attacks at the end of Esther to this new Egyptian king imposing taskmasters at the beginning of Exodus. Joseph's, uh, despite Joseph's political power, the Israelites were eventually enslaved again. So perhaps the narrator of Esther is hinting that the Esther story could turn out the same way. Jonathan Grossman, a scholar, says, While on the surface the book concludes on a joyful note, its hidden dimension leaves the reader hanging, not knowing how the Jews actually fared under subsequent Persian emperors or after Mordecai's time. So hidden underneath this otherwise neat and tidy ending to Esther is a potential warning that the victory achieved through political reversal could just as easily shift again. It seems that, just like the Joseph story, prosperity might be short-lived. So what are we to make of these last moments in the Esther story? On the one hand, Esther 9 presents us with a powerful reversal of fortune where enemies are defeated, but Esther chapter 10 presents us with a hidden omen of potential future misfortune for the victors. So here's two observations that I'll give you about this last part of Esther. First, we ought to rejoice in the reversal. As Christians, we celebrate the great reversal that God has worked on our behalf through his son, Jesus Christ. God used the most horrendous instrument of death, the cross, to bring life everlasting to all who believe. Death itself, regardless of method, is no longer the final fate of the faithful. And we, like the Jews on Purim, should celebrate and rehearse this truth frequently, never letting it fall into disuse. But secondly, we must participate 
in the reversal. As the final chapter of Esther reminds us, much about our future is uncertain. Although we know that we have already been forgiven of sin, justified before God by faith, that we have received the promised Holy Spirit who continually shapes us into the image of Christ, we know that things are not yet fully restored. Plans for death, destruction, and annihilation are put together every day. Sometimes even we are the creators of those plans, or at least we're complicit in some way. So in light of this, Christians must live as agents of reversal. In the words of St. Francis, where there is hatred, we must sow love. Where there is injury, bring pardon. Where there is doubt, bring faith. Where there is despair, hope. And where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. The kingdom of God operates on a reverse value system from the world. The proud will be humbled, and the humbled will be exalted. The first will be last, the last will be first. Whoever is greatest in the kingdom of God must serve others. You must love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If you want to save your life, you must lose it. If you want to truly live your life, you must die daily, taking up your cross to follow Jesus. In other words, what we need is more than a simple transition or reversal of power dynamics. What we need is a transformation, a restoration of our heart's desires. And thanks be to God that this is the gift which the Father has promised to give us through his Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, to repeat those again, Rejoice in the reversal and participate in the reversal. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are sovereign over all events. You do wondrous things like parting waters. But even when you part those waters, you use normal everyday ocean water. So when you, when you do wonderful things among us, our people, our community, our society, our nation, you use ordinary people as the agents of your reversal. You bring us into positions for the time that you have us, whether those positions are high power in a company or in the kitchen restoring order to a a sink of dirty dishes. You've brought us into these places for the time that you've given us. So help us to reverse the chaos in the world. Use us to bring about victory for your kingdom and your kingdom alone. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.